Happy New Year, adult music listeners. Happy New Year from Japan. <laughs> By the time you're listening to this, it will already be New Year here in Japan, and、uh, some people in America, it'll still be December 31st. We're recording this on New Year's Eve's Eve. Yeah. A little bit ahead of time here with episode 146, our first regular episode of 2024. But if you haven't checked it out, be sure to go back to last week's episode where we picked our favorite recordings from 2023. And I'd like to thank all the people who shared the episode during the week, including jazz guitarist Jason Kaiser, composer, pianist Nicholas Sivalov. Also, thanks to Casper Van Miel as well for sharing the episode and posting an excerpt from our little discussion of his recording, that Sati jazz album that we really liked. Also, thanks for the support from the great record labels Positone and Origin Records. Now, when I post like,、uh, my favorite albums of the year, people are actually interested in it. They weren't interested in it three <laughs> years ago when we weren't doing this podcast.、So. Well, we talk about a lot of music that nobody else talks about. You're going to get music for the mature mind, both classical and jazz six recordings every week in our regular episodes. And we're really looking forward to whatever's going to come out in 2024. And mature minds will be necessary this year, I'm sure, being that there's a presidential election coming up in the United States. So just keep that music going and stay calm. <laughs> and I want to remind all of our listeners that in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we're going to discuss. Also, at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, CD quality streaming music from France. You can listen to the podcast on Deezer as well if you want to get everything in one place. And if you can't see the full description or the recording list or links are not easy to follow on whatever app you follow us on, please check us out on our host site, podbean, P O D B E A N.com, where everything is easy to follow. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us. Tell a music loving friend. If you take a moment, And give us a ranking or write a short review. That also helps us get listed in the music category recommendations and we get more listeners that way. Also, come follow us on our Facebook page to get extra info and more releases throughout the week. You can see some interaction with the artists and composers over there. You can leave a message or comment there as well. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. As always, mention our friends over at the same different. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. That's AJ and Johnny, who look at several versions of the same jazz standard each episode. They play little snippets from each version and discuss the history of the original. You'll get a little history lesson over there. And then they talk about what they like and don't like, which is always an interesting discussion. There's a link to their podcast in the description. And if you stick around to the end of this episode, you can also hear a little audio promo from them. And we're going to be coming out today. On their、yeah. podcast, our guest episode. So, looking forward to hearing that. So, if two hours of us isn't enough for you <laughs> on this podcast, you can go over to Same Difference and hear us talk to them on their、yeah. podcast. It's coming out at about the same time. So, that'll be interesting、mm -hmm. to hear. I'll listen to it. Yeah, of course. Because it, it went long, and I'm just wondering how they cut it down. I want to. Yeah,、hear. I think I talked too much. Well, we want to get all of our own things in, but they, you know, they have the scissors, so they can kind of、right. take that away. So. As always, in this episode, we're going to be playing musical samples of the music we're talking about. So here's our fair use disclaimer music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services and the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high quality downloads to support the artists, just like we do. Just like I do, especially. Yeah, Although especially last、Mike. year I wasn't doing that as much as I would have liked to. Given the、uh, exchange rate, but、uh, hopefully this year will be a little better. We'll have to see. Hope so. 
All right, so here we are, fresh in the new year, and we're going to start with a pretty meditative um, program. I think, is, I think yeah. it's really appropriate uh, for the new year. It's a little bit of uh, looking back and a little bit of looking forward, which is kind of where we are because mm. we're actually recording still in the old year. I mean, you know, by the time people listen to this, it'll probably right. most likely be the new year. I wonder if anybody will listen to us on December 31st in the U.S. This will be up in Japan in, on January 1st, but uh, yeah. it'll still be December 31st in the U.S., but I figure everybody will be out somewhere. Although we did get a lot of downloads on Christmas Day. I, th I found that <laughs> very odd. <laughs> was odd. What were people doing? <laughs> it wasn't about the uh, Christmas music episode either. So, What was the best of? That's why. Yeah, right. That was a good one to listen to anyway. All right, so what I'm talking about here, our first classical recording, is one called Morning Star, and it's by the Gisualdo Six, directed by Owain Park, and it's on the Hyperion label, which you can now listen to on streaming. So yeah, that's a good change. And I'm going to tell you, make sure you listen to this one. It's, it's a choral recording, and it's just really great. Morning Star refers to the Feast of Epiphany, which is coming up on January 6th. So even though Christmas is over and we're all thinking of the new year, we're still in the traditional Christmas season, mm -hmm. which goes up to, I guess, 12th night, which is, I guess, January 5th. Think that's an English thing. I don't know how they do things there. <laughs> anyway, and then the next day, January sixth, is the Feast of the Epiphany, and then it's all over. It's just you know right. ordinary time again. I think in the church, and uh, you know you're just waiting for Valentine's Day, I guess, then because it's just cold. Thankfully, there's a Super Bowl to keep us busy in the cold months, and plenty of music to listen to, like this recording. Anyway, let's talk about this Morning Star. So as we know, the Feast of the Epiphany is the uh, time when the uh, three magi, the three wise men, made it to the manger to see the baby Jesus, and they gave him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And just in case you forgot that, I think every track on this album is going to remind <laughs> you. Well, not everyone, but uh, most of them. And they followed a star to get there. So hence the uh, title of this album, referring to that star. This is all music composed for the Feast of the Epiphany, and it's something we don't really think about very often in the U.S., so I'm pretty intrigued by this album. When they think about it even less uh, here in Japan, I think. Oh, well, they, they barely <laughs> think of Christmas. <laughs> so, well, they think about it in a more secular way, let's right. say. So this is coming up. So I feel like this is a really good time to be talking about this uh, album and for you to be listening to it, listeners. So uh, let's get on. And listen to it, you should, and you're going to find out why in just a moment. The first track is by Peter Cornelius. He's a British composer from the 19th century, lived 1824 to 1874. And this is an arrangement of his work, Three Kings, Opus 8, number 3, made by Sir Ivor Algernon Atkins and Owain Park, the director of Jeswaldo Six. The Three Kings. So we're right off on this theme. The first thing we hear is the solo voice of Samuel Mitchell, who starts the piece. He's beautifully captured on the recording by the engineer. We're going to have more of this sort of thing, but let's just listen to the opening. And I want you to bask, not only in the great singing you're going to hear, but in the glorious sound that the engineer manages here. Let's listen to this. This is amazing. This really made me sit up mm. in my seat right away. What a great year to start the new year. You ready, listeners? Here we go. Oh, 
Now you might notice how audible and how easy to understand the text is. It's in yes. English, and you can make out every word. That's almost miraculous on a recording. That's how clear this recording is. It's spacious, and the accompanying harmonies are caught so clearly that the words can actually be made out, even in the, the background. Now, the recording is close and clear. You have a front row seat to this whole performance. The performance itself is as beautiful as we would expect from the Gesualdo Six. Maybe more. They may have outdone themselves on this album. The piece itself has a bit of a Christmas carol inflection to the melodic line, as you just heard. It sounds a little bit like it came upon a midnight clear right at the very beginning. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Now, the music on this album is all religious, so the Gesualdo Six has arranged as sort of like a mass, and we get a uh, Gregorian chant next for track two, the intro it, um, which is sung when the priest approaches the altar for the Eucharist. This is called the uh, Ecce Advenit. It's warmly performed and captured here, and it proceeds rather slowly, but it has a really sumptuous sound and acoustic. The slow speed actually gives it a bit of a sensuous feel, which I thought wasn't permitted in church, but we get it here. Let's listen. You can make out those words too, but they're in Latin, so it might mm. be a little uh, <laughs> not understandable. Third, we have a work by Johannes Eckhard, Maria Walt zum Heiligtum. This is the Renaissance. Eckhard lived from 1533 to 1611. The text is about Jesus' presentation in the temple. The harmony seems to move in chords with much of the text sung simultaneously, with one high voice counterpointing. Each verse starts with a low note, with the melody rising through the singing of the line and touching down at the end, making an arch figure. Track four, we get William Byrd, English composer from the Renaissance, Ecce Advenit. This has the same uh, title as the chant that we just heard. This starts as full-on counterpoint, each voice clearly discernible on the recording. This is another miraculous performance and recording feat. The title means, Behold, the Mighty Lord Comes. Etche Avenue means behold comes, and then the mighty Lord would be next. I liked the full floridity of this work after the first three tracks, which seemed to bloom into this. It's really good programming. Let's hear this, just so you can hear how great this recording is. It's amazing how the individual strands of melody, even in the lower end, can be picked out so easily. Really amazing recording here. Track five, another chant, the gradual. This happens between the response between the epistle and the gospel. And this is called Omnes de Saba Venient. It's the second of the album's chants. This is sung solo by Josh Cooter. 
And as with the voices in the previous chant, he seems to savor every syllable as he sings. And the melisma on the vowel floats into the space. There's a radiant high note hit on the fourth syllable of illuminare, and again on the first syllable of domini when you hear that track. Track six is the first contemporary work that we're hearing on this album by Joanna Marsh. It's called In Winter's House. The harmonies here are very close, and the recording picks up the rich tone of the crowded voices and every nuance of harmony. This piece was recorded last year by Tenebrae on the Signum label, and it was the first time I heard it, and this is the second time. But the recording here makes this the definitive performance so far. The text is a poem by Jane Draycott. Each voice starts with the words, In Winter's House, and the rather abstract verses each present images of greater light as the piece goes on. The composition and choir produce many moods throughout the verses. Oddly, the surprising high note heard on the last syllable doesn't resolve. We're just left suspended in the light, mm. which I guess is where we want to be in these cold winter months. Let's hear this. It's becoming a pretty famous piece, so if you sing in a choir, I don't know. This might be a little hard, but maybe you'll want to introduce this to your ensemble. This is the beginning of In Winter's House by Joanna Marsh. As the piece goes on, the harmony gets brighter as well, and I can't really give you that idea. This is one of the things about music, and especially classical music, occurring over time. In classical music, certain events are planned at certain times. Yeah, that modern harmony there is getting into like take six territory sometimes in there, yeah. Yeah. So after that, we hear track seven, Jacopus Handel, Mirabile Mysterium. We're back to the Renaissance right away with this uh, slowly unfolding piece featuring some piquant passing harmonies. This is an interesting piece harmonically and sounds like it could have been written recently. So it's kind of an interesting programming that they would put this after the marsh. It fits in with the previous work and surely the congregation squirmed at some of the harmonies heard in this piece back in the Renaissance <laughs> era, as they should. The text is about God being made man and Handel sees this apparently as an odd, possibly uncomfortable transition, judging by the harmony anyway. <laughs> Let's hear a bit of this. I'll play this from the beginning, too. get out of here now before we get too engrossed <laughs> in this because those harmonies are just fantastic i just noticed too there's a chromatic rising line at the beginning so part of the reason we have some of these odd harmonies is because of the chromaticism mm -hmm. in the piece that's from the renaissance that's not a modern piece really incredible track eight herbert howells 20th century british composer here is the little door this was one of the first of his compositions to be published and it makes an impact harmonically 
It's pretty bold, with the higher harmonies reaching for the heights in the second line and throughout the piece. The symbolism of the poem, which features the Christ child giving gifts back to the Magi in return for the gifts they gave him. A sword for the gold, battle smoke for the frankincense, and myrrh for the dead to embalm them, which seems to evoke images of World War I when the poem was written. Let's hear a sample of this. This is a pretty remarkable work as well, harmonically. That's a pretty interesting piece of music there. So that whole section of the program is pretty compelling. I actually sampled the last three tracks. Next, we have a chant, the Alleluia, which is just before the gospel in the Mass. Alleluia, vitimus stellam, we see the star. It's a bright Alleluia chant, followed by the vitimus stellam chant, where the Magi declare they have seen Jesus' star in the east. It has radiant, deep hallelujahs at the very end. Tracks 10 and 11 are one piece written by Jacobus Clemens non Papa, which means Clemens, who is not the Pope. There was a Pope Clemens at the time. <laughs> and they, to distinguish it, that it wasn't the Pope writing this music, he was called Clemens non Papa. <laughs> Clemens, not the Pope. <laughs> Magi veniunt ab oriente, and then Magi veniunt ab This is the opening of that piece. It's clever programming as this piece picks up the wise men narrative presented in the chant. The opening of this polyphonic work catches the ear as the second voice comes in on an unexpected high note. The piece moves with clarity in each voice captured by the recording. And I'm sampling a lot of this, I know, but so much of this is so fascinating. And I want you to notice it's all very different too. It just keeps grabbing the ear in different ways. The variety of choral writing on this album really is something to uh, listen for. Let's listen to the opening of this. The thing about pieces like this is like I start them from the beginning and they actually get more interesting as they go. But if I drop you into the middle, it'll just sound sort of chaotic without hearing how it got there. So there you go. The track 11 is the continuation of that piece. The verse depicts the wise men seeing the star saying, this is the sign of a great king. And there's a gorgeous unfolding to the final tonic at the very end. Track 12, we get a little surprise. Arvo Pert wrote a piece called Morning Star. The text is taken from a prayer above the tomb of St. Bede in Durham Cathedral. Paird composed this work for the 175th anniversary of Durham University in 2007. Now, in case you're not a regular listener to our podcast or don't listen to classical music much, Alvaro Paird is a contemporary composer, the most performed a contemporary composer, mm -hmm. in fact. He's very, very well known. The harmony here comes as a surprise, being sung mostly in the singer's higher ranges. The first line... Christ is the morning star, 
is repeated. There are some piquant harmonies in the piece, and it ends with a Renaissance-like tonic. Track 13, Adrian Peacock. Now, this is a name we're going to have to we're going to hear again. He's a contemporary composer. He's also the uh, recording producer on this album. So wow. he's uh, really picked a good uh, venue for his music to be heard because this recording just sounds so spectacular, and he's part of the reason why. The composition is a new musical setting of a Christmas text familiar from Benjamin Britten's Ceremony of Christmas Carol, There Is No Rose. In this setting, it's rather stark. The first verse is sung solo, with voices added with each verse. The harmony opens up further with added voices in each verse, like a gradually blooming flower. Not the first time I've used this metaphor on this album. One can almost sense the light coming back into the world, which is sort of what the Christmas season is all about as far as um, nature is concerned. The final verse is sung solo again, and the piece ends with all of the voices gradually building up harmony on the word transeamus, let's go across. If I were to sample this, I wouldn't get the eff the effect is really, you have to hear the whole piece to right. do it, so I don't want to do it injustice. So I would say sample this on your own. Listen to the whole piece. Track 14 is a chant, the offertory, which is the collection of money in the uh, mass. The chant is called Re Regis Tharsis, and the magic of this chant is the repeated vocal note in the second syllable of Regis, sung by Joseph Wicks. I'm going to sample this, because I thought this was a little uh, unusual and interesting as well. I'm sorry, I picked the wrong syllable there. It should have been on Tharsis, the second syllable of the second word, Tharsis. And then we hear it on Regis the second time mm. he sings that. So go back and listen again. Track 15, or Orlando de Lassus, Renaissance composer, Tribus Miraculis. A polyphonic Renaissance-era work, the text speaks of three miracles occurring on the same day of the year. A star leading wise men to the manger, water changed to wine at the marriage feast, and Jesus being baptized by John. These are all supposed to have happened on the same day, January 6th. They're all celebrated on that day. There's a lot of noticeable conjunct melisma on the vowels in this work. Certain words are repeated, allowing the listener to orient himself to the text. Track 16 is our director, Owen Park, the director of Jeswaldo 6. His composition, O Send Out Thy Light. Uh, the text here he sets is very brief, only two lines from Psalm 42. I forget how this works. 42 in the, uh, or it's, it's 43 in the uh, Roman Catholic Bible and 42 in the Protestant one. I can't remember how that works. The vocal lines stream out light beams of light painting the text. It's a soothing, positive setting. Let's sample it.
I love that. The vocalists are singing, Oh, send out thy light. And the musical setting is sending out the light. And right just before I ended that um, sample, you know, the high beams went on for just a moment with that <laughs> really burst of uh, dynamic there. Really nice composition by Owen Park. Track 17 is the, another chant for communion. Vidimus stellum, we see the star. Uh, four voices are heard in this chant singing in unison. Melisma is slowly articulated, creating a slow, flowing sound, fitting in with the previous piece by Owen Park. Track 18, Judith Bingham, a contemporary composer, In Mary's Love is the name of the piece. And this contemporary piece starts with almost fluty, breathy sounds from the vocalists, gently laid down. The composition is calm with some close harmonies. The second verse opens the harmony up with some higher voices coming in. The third verse passes quickly while the fourth pauses on the harmonies even to certain syllables. The final verse features a solo voice underpinned by vocal tones with the penultimate line presented in full harmony and the final line sung solo by the lowest voice with other singing tones for harmonic support. Now, to really get the full impact of this composition, really for any composition, you have to hear the whole thing. Each verse is like a different composition. Let's hear the opening though, because I do like the breathy sounds that are used here. Listening to again, I'm thinking more maybe reedy, but I heard this as like kind of a wind section mm -hmm. when I heard it the first time. Tracks 19 and 20 are two sections of uh, the same piece by Pierre de Manchicourt, Renaissance era composer, Illuminare Jerusalem. This is the first section, Quia Venit Lumentum. There's a high voice floating above the rest of the intertwining lines. And then track 20, the piece continues with the line, Fili tui de longe venient. It's a continuation. The text itself is comforting, assuring its readers that the glory of the Lord has risen upon them, and the music itself is calming, as befits the text. This particular section seems to unfold with a sense of serene rest. That's the track 20 part. And we end the um, album with a traditional work arranged by Owen Park, Bethlehem of Noblest Cities. The arrangement opens with a solo tenor voice singing the simple melody. Harmony enters in the second verse, the text is again about the star of Bethlehem. And I like the third verse with its entry of the lower voices, uh, with the higher voices later layering in the higher parts. The final verse is sung by all voices in unison harmony, giving it a chant feel. The Amen at the end is sung in harmony, and that's the album. And what an astonishing album and recording it is. This might be my favorite album by the Giswaldo Six, and I have all of them so far. <laughs> I've heard them all. The recording engineer here is um, David Hinnett, and the producer is the composer we heard on this album, Adrian Peacock. We're going to hear those names again. I won't tell you where yet, but just keep listening. And these are names to look for on recordings, I would say. This is an incredibly clear recording of these voices. There's so many magical moments to sample on this album, and I sampled like more than my fair share, I have to say. I hope you enjoyed all of those. They're all very different. 
There are many more, though, that you didn't hear yet, so make sure you hear this record. The Gisualdo Six always produced singing and harmonizing of the highest quality, always rich-sounding as here. This is an unmissable album for fans of choral music and an excellent yet unusual program featuring works for Epiphany, both from the Renaissance and our current times, and one or two in between. This is a great way to start the new year. Still in the Christmas season, looking forward to Epiphany? I'd say give yourself a little uh, treat and start the new year right and hear this album. As with their previous recordings, I thoroughly enjoyed this one. The voices are always incredible, and I always like their phrasing. I really like the programming here, though. You know, I do like Renaissance vocals a lot. I find them very peaceful, and the harmonies interesting. But sometimes, if you have a long recording of only Renaissance music, you sort of get lulled into you know, one same type of harmony. But here, with this variety of early music, chant, and then the modern works mixed in, there's a lot of different types of harmonies that are coming at you, and, and that variety keeps it fresh. You continually be surprised by what you hear throughout this recording. So I thought this was fabulous, too. Yeah, really something. I feel like we're starting the new year right here on the Adult Music yeah. Podcast with this album. Let's move on to our second recording. I've made a piano sandwich out of this uh, <laughs> out of this uh, classical programming this week. I, I don't think we should call this episode Piano Sandwich. Let's save that for another time. Anyway, the piano album in question is Waves by Bruce Liu on the piano. And this is on the Deutsche Grammophon label. So Bruce Liu was born in Paris in France and won the 2021 International Frédéric Chopin competition and Deutsche Grammophon released an exciting album of his performances of Chopin's works recorded live at that competition which I absolutely recommend that you hear it's spontaneous playing really spectacular it really captures something in Chopin's music that we have we normally don't hear well worth your time this particular album Waves the one that we're talking about today is Bruce Liu's first studio album. And uh, he says he tried to get a different sound for each composer, and indeed he does that. This is from his notes. Rameau is drier, more direct, and bouncy, in quotation marks, in a way. Ravel is moody and foggy, and Alcon is a mix between the two. He credits the piano technician with helping him set up the different sound pictures. This is a recording of all French composers, and each composer was active in successive centuries, all specializing in writing programmatic pieces and all advanced keyboard music in unique ways. The album is programmed as Baroque to Romantic to Impressionistic. He says Impressionistic for Ravel. I'd call that Modernist more than Impressionistic. Mm. We like to label the French uh, composers with that Impressionistic label. I don't know. They didn't like it, and I kind of can see why. They really are a part of the big Modernist project at the time and back again. And most of the works have programmatic titles as well. Liu explains that the um, album has a theme of natural phenomena, and the title Waves is an indication of that and of Liu's spontaneity, according to James Jolly in the notes. Liu changes like the sea, they say. I would like to say that the Waves title could refer to the program's trajectory, the wave forming in the Baroque, moving through the Romantic and crashing into the Modernist, and then being sucked back through the romantic to the Baroque to end the album. It sort of moves forward, except mm. that it does go back to Rameau at one point. Um, you could think of the second half of the program as the undertow. So if you want to use that waves um, <laughs> theory, I rather I like my idea better than his. <laughs> anyway, but I'm not the pianist here, thankfully. Anyway, we're, let's listen to uh, this. Now, there's something I have to explain 
If you have the uh, CD of this, there are 13 tracks on the CD. The first opening track by Rameau, Gavotte and Six Double, is the first track. But on the streaming, um, that takes up how many tracks? Uh, seven tracks, because they've isolated every variation on its own track, mm -hmm. which I have to say I don't approve of. You're going to listen to just one variation. If it's an album-length work, like Bach's Goldberg variations, where you have 70 minutes of variations, then you can separate each of the variations, or Beethoven's Diabelli variations. But when you have like an eight-minute work, it's like a minute per track. There's no yeah. need to do that. The person could find them if they really want to isolate one. And who wants to do that? You just want to hear the whole piece all the way through. Anyway, if you're on streaming, this is tracks one through seven. I'm going to talk about this as though it's just one piece. Liu has a smooth attack, and the sound is smooth and immediately appealing. This isn't quite as dry as he made me expect in the notes. I'm noticing the sense of spontaneity here that Liu got in his Chopin performances. It mostly occurs in the interaction between the two hands, between the melody and the bass line. They sound completely detached, in a good way, though. At a minute and 28 seconds, the 16th note variation starts... Liu uses a staccato sound for part of this, and the bass line gets some odd accents, drawing attention to itself at points. More spontaneity there. At 2 minutes and 33 seconds, the theme is in quarter notes in the right hand, while the left hand races through the 16th note figuration. Phrasing of the left hand is interesting, with some breaths taken at certain points. Breaths in quotation marks there. The piano doesn't need to breathe, but you phrase like a voice, really, when you're playing melodies. At 3 minutes and 32 seconds, the same sort of theme is heard in the right hand, but the 16th note left hand is different and played with occasional staccato sound. The right hand becomes more florid at one point. Now, at 4 minutes and 31 seconds on the CD, you're really just going to be moving through the tracks as you hear this. There's a variation with repeated notes and some oddly angled pauses that really give this variation character. At 5 minutes and 20 seconds, which I believe is going to be track 5, it might be six at this point, I'm not sure. The repeated notes in the right hand continue with the pattern in the left hand changing. At six minutes and eight seconds, track six or seven uh, on the streaming, the tempo seems to speed up with quarter notes in the right hand and repeated 16th notes in the left. This is a bright, joyous performance overall with a real sense of spontaneity. The second uh, track, Charles Valentin Alcan, Barcarolle in G minor, Opus 65, Number six, from his Troisième Recueil de Chant. This is track two on the CD and track eight on streaming. And this has a very different sound, very muted and quiet at the beginning. There's a soft attack, perhaps via use of the una corda pedal. That's the pedal on the left side of the piano that shifts the uh, dampers over so that you're only hitting part of the string. Liu doesn't linger on these melodies as romantic-minded pianists tend to. He's more concerned with the sense of melodic line coming across. There is a cloudy texture provided by the light sustain pedal held down for long periods. It's a lovely performance, and let's get a sample of this. Beautiful playing, and if you like that, 
you'll have to listen to this uh, track over and over because it's the only track on the album that sounds like that. Uh, he really does uh, provide a lot of variety on this album. The next track, track nine on streaming and track three on the CD, is Rameau again, Les Sauvages, or The Savages, which is number 14 from his Nouvelle Suite de Pièces de Clavecin from 1728, around that year. The sound comes across as harder here after hearing the soft attack in the previous Alcon Barcarolle. There are a lot of quick repeated notes in this one, and even a judicious slowing at the end of phrases, which is unusual, but it works in use hands. Normally in the Baroque, you don't have these sort of little retards at the end of phrases. The rhythm is more mechanical, let's say, or it just keeps moving. It's a very brief work at a minute 51 seconds, excellently executed, but I don't know what to think of this interpretation. It certainly comes across clearly and effectively. Uh, you can tell us what you think. Let's listen to the beginning of this. those little pauses at the end of the phrases. Uh, I don't know what I think about that. It sounds very musical. Mm. Okay, next, Maurice Ravel, Miroir. This is one of my favorite set of piano works in existence, so I was really looking forward to hearing this. This is tracks 4 through 8 on the CD, tracks 10 to 14 on the streaming, or at least on, uh, on Deezer. I'm guessing this is true of all streaming. The first of these is called Noctuelles, or I guess Night Moths would be the answer, so it's kind of creating this image of this bug, <laughs> this night <laughs> flying insect at night. It's got a vivid attack and sound, and all of the complex rhythms are clearly delineated. This is played surprisingly fast, yet the contours of the lines still emerge. Liu makes the dynamics communicate a lot. There are quite subtle crescendos at the ends of some phrases that made me sit up in admiration. The piano itself sounds rather sharp-edged in the high end. The sound is more on the bright side than the warm side. Liu wants this to be a bit disturbing. It should be, in fact, and it does come across as compelling. I was hanging on to every element, all coming across clearly. I like the way Liu will use a dry sound at times with no or little pedal to make certain phrases stand out in a way I haven't heard before. So I like the approach here. Track 5 or 11, if you're on streaming, is Oiseau Triste or Sad Birds. <laughs> I always thought that was a pretty funny title. I don't know. The echoed phrases at the beginning of this come across beautifully as though they are spur-of-the-moment inspiration. There's a kind of juxtaposed rhythm between the chords in the left hand and the bird song in the right that Liu draws out. And I like this approach. He plays the section from a minute and 25 seconds with elan, or a sense of um, building up, let's say, to something. And that leads to a rapid section at about a minute and 35 seconds in. Let's sample that.
know, one of the few rapid sections of this relatively slow piece. Track six or 12, Un Bach sur l'Océan. This is a, a boat on the ocean. The opening is played very fast, and this throws the ocean wave-like rhythm into high relief. It sounds more pianistic here than ocean-like, in my opinion. I feel like the ocean would move more slowly. <laughs> but I like the entire sound and shape of the lines as they come across here. The bass rumbles effectively in the left hand, and the playing, despite being fast, does put across a watery quality, though to me not really an ocean-like one. I'd prefer this to be slower, but I can't deny that the interpretation is effective. Let's sample this a minute in. That little uh, sort of arpeggiated phrase at the very end there is supposed to be like sort of cascading water. But here it really does sound like a piano to me. It doesn't really create the illusion, I, I feel anyway. It's very fast. Okay, track seven or 11, a very famous work, Alborada del Gracioso in Spanish entitled Morning Song of the Jester. An Alborada, this is very interesting. I never even knew this. An Alborada is a morning song. Hmm. And a serenata, or serenade, is an evening song. Right. So there's actually a word for a morning song. Who knew? I knew about a serenade way before I knew about an albad, let's say, or an alborada in Spanish. Anyway, this is very fast, and again, more pianistic than guitar-like. The opening is supposed to imitate a guitar. Liu has something else in mind here. The rhythm is firmly etched, and the Spanish elements, such as the explosive phrases we hear at the 42nd mark, are fully in character. The famous repeated notes have a nice rattle to them that do indeed come across as guitar-like. So I want to play that part, the uh, parts with the very obvious uh, Spanish character. Let's listen to that. Okay, and that repeating note that you hear is something that is native to the guitar. Hard to do on the piano, though. So this is faster than usual. I like the distant sound you gets to the chords in the high end of the piano for the slower middle section. It sounds like a distant festival in this performance. Again, you manages to get a great detail out of Ravel's writing despite the speed he's playing at. The speed of the repeated notes in the scales and glissandos at the end is really astonishing. Uh, this vivid bass on the final chord. And track eight, my favorite, because I love bells. One of the reasons I like the piano is because it decays like bells. And I like piano pieces that imitate bells as this track eight or 12 on streaming does. La Vallée de Cloche, the city of bells. This is played very fast again. 
And while the detail is perfectly audible, it sounds even faster than Stephen Osborne's performance, which was one that I heard years ago, too. I feel a certain quality I like about this piece is lost. There's a kind of lugubriousness to it that's cheered up in Liu's interpretation. Now, this is his interpretation, and uh, maybe that's what he wants. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. He simply hears the piece differently than I do. And I was pretty interested in how this was going to progress. The ringing bass notes at a minute and 20 seconds almost sound like a special effect, like the piano was tuned or altered in a specific way. And I think it's too much. At this speed, the shape of the lines come into clearer focus. If you want to hear a performance that I really like of this, our pianist from the uh, Satie album two weeks ago, uh, Bertrand Chamayou, does a really excellent interpretation of this work. Okay, track nine on the CD, or... 15 through 21 on streaming. This is another set of variations. Now, there are 25 variations on this. Thankfully, the streaming didn't separate this into 25 separate tracks. It went, uh, it looks like it's only seven tracks here. This is um, Charles Valentin Alcan. So we're now in the undertow part of the, uh, being pulled back into the Baroque part of the program. This is by Alcan Le Festin des Sop, Aesop's Feast in E minor, opus 39, number 12, from Douze Etudes dans tout le temps mineur. Like all of those works from his etudes, this is a really difficult work to play. And to be honest, this is the highlight of the album because there's some pretty spectacular virtuosity on display in this piece. The opening theme is pretty straightforward, played with staccato chords. The sound quality is much like the Ravel, not the hazy style we heard in the earlier Barker role. The variations are all very short and are separated by a pause in the beginning, so they're easy to follow. They get pretty crazy as they go and start to melt into each other rather than being separated. Liu is admirably up to the extreme virtuosic challenges of playing this piece. The sound is sharply etched and vivid. In fact, at 5 minutes and 52 seconds, the chords thunder out of the piano. Like I said, this is the standout performance of the album, and let's hear some of it. I'm going to go to something more towards the end And it just gets crazier from there. Alcon's music, it's starting to be played again because we have uh, virtuosos up to the challenge. In the, in, the, in the Romantic era, not many pianists played it because it was really, really hard. Anyway, we get to the, uh, the final tracks on the album. They're all by Rameau, so we're back in the Baroque era. Le Tendre Plainte is the name of track 22 on streaming or 10 on the CD. And we're getting a cushioned attack here, something more legato. There are a lot of ornaments in the French style, and Liu keeps them discreet, emphasizing the melody commendably. It sounds like the una corda pedal may be being used throughout. This really has a different character than versions played on the harpsichord. Here it's more song-like, while on the harpsichord it has more of a quality of uh, decorum. Track 11, or on streaming 23, Rameau Le Cyclope. This is um, a very famous piece with rising lines of repeated notes. It's played with a lot of staccato feel here. At the 29 second mark, the theme comes across well, and we're gonna hear that. 
You may have heard that before. The volume is kept at a discrete level, as you might have noticed, especially after the Alcon. Liu manages here, and throughout the album, to put across a sense of spontaneity in the way he'll accent certain details. Track 12 on the CD, 24 on streaming. Rameau, Menuet 1 and 2. This has an appealing, light, leaping quality to it. Liu, as so often, giving a lot of spring to the rhythm, drawing out the dance quality. This has a cushioned sound to it as well, so a light touch and possibly unicorda pedal is used. The middle section actually slows down a bit. This becomes very obvious when the opening menuet returns at a faster speed, and the two are set in contrast in this way. The final track, 13 on the CD, or 25 on streaming, is La Poule, which is the hen, and because of its pecking quality heard at the beginning, as you can hear here. Configuration at the end of that phrase was really astonishingly fast. And the, you know, the pecking sound, you can imagine how that must have charmed the ladies at the courts in uh, the Baroque era. Liu takes a surprisingly slower approach to this, yet there are some lighter, fast runs in the figuration. That's probably why, because he wanted to get those in at really an astonishing speed. Again, a lot of staccato is used and detail emerges with clarity. There's some startling, fully detailed figuration in the second minute. You heard some of it actually there. In this work, Liu does have the romantic slowing down at the end of phrases approach. It's effective, again, for him, but always makes me wonder. Anyway, it's an engaging ending to an album of creative, thoughtful piano playing. So I would say Bruce Liu is a communicator, and he communicates through spontaneity. He's more interested in telling the story, or making the emotion felt, than playing beautifully, though he does that too. It's important, in my opinion, to listen to this recording from beginning to end as the different sounds Liu produces on the piano are part of the key to his interpretation of these works. They work in a programmatic way as well as being great by themselves. The playing is of a type that makes you sit up in your seat. The standout performances of the album was Alcant's Festin de Sop, in my opinion, a real tour de force of piano playing. I'd like to hear him do a full album of Alcon's music. The Ravel was imaginative, though I feel one shouldn't tinker with Ravel's music as much as this. I thought the tempos were mostly too fast there. And the Rameau works are all inventively played as well, though again, he adds a bit of um, rubato or retardando at the end of phrases that I, made me question the approach. These are all very original interpretations of these works, though. And this is a pianist that I think I'm going to have to follow, no matter what he plays, because he's a, he's a pretty interesting interpreter of piano music. Very technically impressive playing here, and an engaging French program. I do enjoy his phrasing that has a smoothness of line while keeping really tight rhythms. I found that impressive. I thought the Rameau was pretty excellent. Sometimes, though, I feel like it's a very measured approach but I sense a lot of tension the whole time when I'm listening to the music. The Alcon was a really good performance. And I guess what I'm searching for in his playing is more of a lived-in expression. But he's only 26 years old. So right. I would say this guy's got all the tools. And this is his first real big recording. So it'll be interesting to see you know, what he does next. Because this was a really well-thought-out program. And I thought that was really engaging. And I'd like to see what he puts together in terms of pieces and composers for future projects. 
Yeah, he takes on a really interpretative approach. You know, he doesn't just play the works, you know what I mean? So I mm. think a lot of work goes into that. I think I know what you mean by the tension. It sounds kind of like, when you say not lived in, I mean, it's this. It's not really relaxed, I think, is right. what you mean. Like, there's a lot of, like, uh, nervous energy to the playing, especially in the uh, yeah. the Baroque works. I don't know. I just took that as part of the interpretation. But, yeah, I can see what you mean there. Anyway, I did enjoy it, though. Yeah, it was an enjoyable performance. Third classical album is rather a bit of a surprise. I was uh, delightfully surprised yes. by this. Mirabilis, the music of Stephen Huff. And this is performed by the London Choral Sinfonia. Michael Waldron conducting and James Orford playing the organ. It's on Orchid Classics. Now, we know Stephen Hoff as a pianist and really yeah. among my favorite pianists, probably my favorite pianist, actually. He's also an engaging uh, booklet note writer. Uh, he's, a, he's a great writer as well. He's written a few books about his life and about being a pianist and hmm. music. And he writes a lot of interesting booklet notes. He's extremely well-read and writes like someone who is well-read. <laughs> I think that's part of the problem with a lot of writing we see today is people just don't read books. They just write and they don't write because they don't really have a sense of what good writing is like. Huff definitely does have an idea of what good writing is like. Believe it or not, there was no classical music in Stephen Huff's house when he was growing up. It came from the piano at age six. There were hymns at primary school and church, choir at high school, and later compulsory chorus class at Juilliard. He composed as a teenager, then wrote nothing for 20 years as his career as a piano soloist unfolded. Then in his early 40s, he returned to composition with a passion. And apparently we're going to hear a lot more recordings of Stephen Huff's music, but let's uh, give a listen to this album of choral works. Now, we did hear a string quartet by him earlier in 2023 that the Torkach Quartet played. And uh, here we're hearing his uh, choral music. The first track is called Just As I Am. It's a poem by Charlotte Elliot, the text places the individual soul before a compassionate God, and Huff wanted to bring out the sense of ardor suggested by the words. It starts with light, distant organ chords, and the very English-sounding choir sings the text in stacked harmony rather tranquilly. We hear women's voices only in the first verse, then men's voices repeat it, with women's voices coming in soon afterwards. Huff is very sensitive to the audibility of the text in his setting. The organ starts playing a bigger role in the composition in the third verse. It's an appealing piece, beautifully performed here, recorded with great clarity. All right, I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag right away. I was amazed by this recording as well. And I looked up who the uh, engineer was because I wanted to mention them again. And guess who it is? The same team yeah. <laughs> from the morning, from the Jeswaldo Six album. It's uh, David Hinnett again as the engineer and Adrian Peacock as the recording producer. And the recording manager is Amy Hines in this case. So we have two amazing sounding albums in one program on two different record labels engineered by the same team. Wow. Yeah. Okay. The second piece on this work is a five movement mass called Misa Mirabilis. So this is the title track, if you will. It was composed in 2007. Huff calls this work uh, Mirabilis for personal reasons. In September 2006, he had a serious car crash overturning on the highway at 80 miles an hour. Wow. Yeah, he had written three movements of this mass by that time and stepped out of the untouched door in his completely mangled car with his mass manuscript and body intact. But Mirabilis is a miracle. So this is the miracle mass. Yeah. He wrote the Agnus Day in St. Mary's Hospital while waiting four hours for a brain scan. This uh, mass is what he was composing at that time, and he finished it 
afterwards. The opening Kyrie, Lord Have Mercy, has melodic and harmonic material that is sweet and consoling. The piece starts with drifting organ chords. The melody for the opening Kyrie is catchy and appealing. The movement comes across as soothing, and after the appealing vocalizing, the organ closes out the piece. There's a vividly captured bass pedal on the last note, and bass pedals are going to be a fantastic thing throughout this recording. They're just magically picked up by the recording. Let's just hear the opening of this. We'll hear the distant organ and the opening Kyrie statement. I'm going way too far with that that (laughs) sample. There's a lot of music there. The uh, third track, the second section, is the Gloria. This has exuberant organ figures spraying out arpeggios like a fountain. Again, Huff finds appealing melodies for the text. The text is sung and set with absolute conviction in what's being said. (laughs) That'll change in the credo, which is coming next. There's a big change of character for the section starting with Qui Tolis, being more understated but still very attractive. By the end, the singing is exuberant again. All right, the middle section, Credo. This is track four. It's the central idea as well as being the central movement. Instead of setting the text in a descriptive way, Huff wanted to explore aspects of the psychology underlining the nature of belief and doubt. He divides the lower and upper voices like he's dividing innocence from experience. Even the mighty opening chord here feels harmonically strained. The men's voices continue after that in a creeping fashion, accompanied by staccato from the organ. Let's hear the uh, just the opening of this track. Okay, so the operating idea here is that the the men's voice is singing the um, prayer in, that's sung in church, is are just kind of sort of going through it, while the uh, mighty organ and women's voices are like, stating right. their innocence of their belief. The higher voices singing the word credo are the believers. The crucifixus section is almost muttered and goes down low for the sepultus est. Sepultus is he was buried. The high women's voices get the resurrexit section, of course, they're the innocent believers. Harmony and melodic shape get a little off kilter afterwards, and at the end, the women's voices softly sing Credo one last time. It's a pretty unique setting of this church prayer, part of the church ordinary. The fourth movement, track five, Sanctus. Sanctus and Benedictus aim to contrast the divine and human. The Sanctus is grand, vast, immense, while the Benedictus features God as human, and the music is intimate, as if two people are sharing a drink at a Parisian cafe. 
Huff says there's a bit of a 1950s pop tune coming from a neighboring cafe's jukebox in the piece. I didn't pick that up, so maybe sharp-eared listeners might be able to pull that out. Anyway, the Sanctus starts grandly, and the Benedictus is more at the human level. And I, to be honest, I just like human things, so I'm going to sample a bit of the Benedictus here. Uh, just as it's getting interesting, I ducked out. Notice how beautifully like laid down that bass pedal is on the recording. It's just an amazing capturing of that sound. The sixth track, this is the fifth movement, Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, uh, has a somber and grateful sounding opening. Again, the contour of the theme is appealing. Let's hear that. At the two-minute mark, there's a build-up in the Agnus Dei repetitions, but the last line, Dona Nobis Pacem, Give Us Peace, isn't stated. Instead, the organ plays an agitated cadenza and does so at length. In the third minute, the first section is repeated, and we finally hear the words Dona Nobis Pacem at 3 minutes and 25 seconds into the movement, and it's elaborated on by the voices to the end of the work, with the organ coming in for some last somber lines along with the chorus. Tracks 7 and 8 are the Londinium Magnificat from 2007. Londinium refers to Westminster Abbey in this case. These are written with dual texts in Latin and English, and therefore sopranos and altos. In fact, the Latin and English are sung simultaneously by two sections of the choir. This is a rhythmically active setting and includes the organ. It's an imaginative setting with the harmony being diatonic and the juxtaposition of texts hinting back at medieval times when simultaneous sung texts were common. The organ goes off on a grand excursion toward the end and has the final chord after the Amen. Track 8 is a Nunc Dimittis. This is part of that same Londinium Magnificat. And I like the repeating Nunc Dimittis text accompanying the English singing of the text at the beginning. Eventually the Latin section gets going. Uh, this is a gentler setting than the more rhythmically active Magnificat. Again, it's imaginative and has a nice, clean, rumbling bass pedal at the end, sumptuously caught by the engineer. I'm going to just uh, play the opening of the Nunc Dimittis. Oh, 
you know, once again, once that organ pedal makes itself known, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> amazed at how great this album sounds. Track nine, Ding Dong Merrily on High. This is a pretty famous Christmas carol, but Huff has written uh, different music for it. So if you know the original, which is very old, <laughs> you're not going to recognize it here. He wanted maximum exuberance and jangle here, and this is nothing like the tune we normally associate with these words. It has a dotted rhythm and sort of a bells with pauses effect in the melodic line. The organ accompanies and has the last flashy chord. Now, I have to say, I'm glad I'm doing this recording now because uh, the next piece is called December. And while December is over, there are two sort of Christmas texts in here. So we could still be looking back while we're looking forward to 2024. There you go. So this piece uh, celebrates the month from Advent to the New Year. And this was assembled um, over the years by different pieces that Hoff had written. The first movement is called Advent Calendar. This is track 10. And it was one of the first pieces Hoff wrote after beginning to compose it again in his 40s. It was written in 2004. The setting is for a cappella choir. The different sections of the Magnificat choir are beautifully caught and separated by the recording. The text is easy to follow. And this, of course, is partly because of the clarity of Hoff's style. We need to just say that. Part of the reason we're understanding all these words is also because of the clarity of the setting that Hoff is um, using. One does wonder how a musician focusing the majority of his career on piano performance is able to compose with such clarity of sound, especially the first time he tried it in 20 years. This is a pretty amazing piece. Mm. It's magnificent all around. Let's just hear the opening of this. Some pretty adventurous turns of phrases there for a person <laughs> composing one of his first works yeah. in many years. Track 11 is Hark the Herald Angels Sing from 2007. The words are familiar, but the music is not. This, and we're going to hear Silent Night next, are well-known texts that Huff composed new music for. And while these are the words of the famous Christmas carol, the setting makes it melodically unidentifiable, though the text is so clearly set and sung that the words are comprehensible. It's an interesting setting, all the more remarkable, for not referring at all to the traditional setting of the text. Huff really creates a sophisticated composition around the text. But the one I want to sample is the next one, uh, track 12. This is the third section of December. Silent Night, which he wrote in 2010, one of the most famous Christmas melodies in existence. But it's set differently here and in a sophisticated style, though the simplicity of the original does come across as sophisticated if one gets some distance from it. Here, the music doesn't repeat from verse to verse, but moves on to new sections. It's an imaginative work from Huff here, and really throughout the album. Let's listen to this, and remember, you know the words, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. Let's listen.
for me, the original is so famous. How do you get your head out <laughs> you of can't that? Get it out of your compose, mind, yeah. You know what I mean? And compose mm-hmm. like an entirely new melody for those words. Right. I, I can't remove myself from that. It's so ingrained. Hark the Herald Angels Sing has a similar quality to it. The last movement of this, uh, The Gate of the Year, this is track 13, all composed in 2004. And it started life as a solo song for the tenor Robert White. And the comforting words are were broadcast on the radio by King George VI as the Second World War began. I was impressed by the thoughtful choice of text here, first of all. It's worth reading. The setting is commendable again for its allegiance to the text, which is presented with clarity. This seems to be a hallmark of Huff's choral writing. There's a lovely, soothing ending to this setting with a few dramatic moments. Tracks 14 through 16, Three Marian Hymns from 2004. These three works are a kind of mantra-like repetition of these ancient prayers to the Virgin Mary. Track 14, O Santissima. The organ accompanies the female choir in this straightforward setting of the text, which nevertheless manages to be catchy due to its short and memorable phrases. Again, the words are clearly set and easily distinguishable from the setting. Track 15, Salve Regina. There's a bit of a catchy melisma in the words Salve Regina and throughout. The curvy, melodic nature of the setting is instantly appealing, so let's hear a sample of that. Track 16, Ave Maria. I like the lightly descending quality of the opening of this piece. Let's uh, hear a sample of that. That's a lovely melody, some spice in the harmony. Well set. There's some interesting passing harmonies in the line. You heard some of them there. The setting is inventive and appealing throughout with constantly surprising, appealing turns of musical phrase. For example, I like the descending entries on the word nunc, which is now, in the last line. It's a beautifully clear recording of the organ's bass notes, too. And this is really true throughout the album. They sound fantastically smooth and subtle, coming from the subwoofer, and even from your headphones. Track 17, Oh Soft Self-Wounding Pelican, from 2007. (laughs) This is a text by St. Thomas Aquinas. I was trying to figure out really what this is about, and (laughs) the images are really hard to decipher. Um, His original Latin was rendered into Elizabethan verse here by Richard Crashaw. The organ accompanies lightly, women's voices sing this work, and the writing progresses by syllables, in other words, no melisma making the singing sound like a statement of the text. There are some spectacular low bass notes from the organ in this work, including the one at the very end, magnificently caught. Tracks 18 through 19 are a sonatina. We get away from the uh, vocals for one piece. This is an organ solo by James Orford, and it was written in 2019. 
The music director of Ardingly College, when Huff composed the opening track, Just As I Am, was Robert Costlin, and after the premiere of Just As I Am, Costlin asked Huff to write him an organ piece, and this is the result. So we're hearing this played by James Orford here, as I mentioned. Track 18 is an allegro tranquillo, and the opening bar is a 12-note row. But before you think this is going to be a Schoenbergian, uh, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> serial work, think again. Another row makes a bar two, but Huff says the serialism is merely a series of decorative stones here, not the architecture. In fact, yeah, they really just sounds, and he's written this in a way where it actually sounds melodic, like a lot of it's chromatic, and they're not going to be a structuring element. So let's just hear the opening of this. Keep in mind, these, you're going to hear all 12 notes in a chromatic scale here. that phrase ending so let's stop there okay the movement is in aba form the b section opposes pure diatonic tonality in the right hand with a pentatonic chordal mantra in the left that's pretty interesting so it's diatonic yeah. diatonic means like a major or minor scale it's something that feels like it has some sort of a pull or gravity to it and pentatonic is what you hear in rock and roll a lot or in folk music so you're hearing white versus black notes basically on the piano or on the keyboard the A section is an exact repeat of the opening's pitches when it comes back, but now in splashing and darting rhythms. So those arpeggios, to me, that sounded kind of spacey, you know, like right. something you'd hear in like a 1950s uh, outer space movie. The bass comes in at the 32nd mark and is rich, but very subtle. I didn't actually get to that part. I love the effect, though. Bass notes don't stay around for long in this. They just briefly underline the harmony. Nasal tones at one minute start playing downward patterns. I guess that would be the reeds setting on the um, on the organ. A slower section starts at a minute and 50 seconds and another stop playing a counter melody. A new section starts at 3 minutes and 15 seconds with a reedy tone in the melody and soft but powerfully felt bass notes. We're back to the A section at 4 minutes and 5 seconds. The piece ends on a serene sustained chord, or the movement I should say, because there's another movement, track 19. Second movement and final movement, Allegro Jocoso. This is a boisterous dance full of exuberance and joy. Alongside the bouncing opening tune, the three musical ideas of the first movement reappear in different guises until the final blaring coda, when over a pedal D, we hear the 12-note row of bar one of the piece, unison in both hands. I should mention, I'm reading this from the booklet at this point. This is, uh, I think, Stephen Huff's writing. Then it's heard in retrograde, now harmonized in the language of the main body of the second movement. A radiant pentatonic chord ends the piece. Okay, this is what I have to say about this. This dance sounds a bit like uh, the church Baroque in its bounce, but more romantic or modernist in its harmony. At four minutes and seven seconds, we hear the opening powerful 12-note row again, and the piece ends on a powerful sustained chord. Track 20, the final track on the album, is a setting of Danny Boy, the famous Irish song. It's pretty straightforward. We leave this album with a light organ and choir rendition of Danny Boy, arranged for harmonized voices with no tricks. The choir sings as one single voice. It's pretty. There's a bit of counter-melodizing by the men's voices in the But Come Ye Back verse. 
or part of the verse. Huff also sets the second verse, nothing fancy here, just a beautiful song, and that bass pedal on the ending note is faint, felt by the body. Fantastic. Okay, again, this is a sumptuously recorded album. Let me shout out again the engineer, David Hinnett, producer Adrian Peacock, both of whom we heard on the Morning Star album at the beginning of this podcast, and recording manager Amy Hines. The star here, though, is Stephen Huff's amazingly clear and spacious compositional style. The high-performing caliber London Choral Symphonia, of course, does a lot to make these compositions come to life, but I think they'd be successful in anyone's hands, really. They're such great pieces. In fact, I'd encourage amateur choirs as well as professional ones to look into the works on this album. They deserve to be heard worldwide. For me, James Orford's organ playing was charismatic throughout, not least because of the organ's rich sound on the recording. It's an enjoyable album full of choral compositions with some depth to them. Stephen Huff has always been thoughtful, as evidenced in the booklet notes he writes as well as in his piano playing, and that translates beautifully to these choral compositions. I'd encourage any lover of choral music to absolutely hear this, along with the Morning Star recording we talked about earlier. These are interesting and enjoyable. Huff's harmonies and the arrangement of voices is quite arresting. I found my attention 100% drawn in in a lot of spots here. There's a lot of tension with dissonances, and that's contrasted with really angelic moments uh, that in the voices and the way the voices are separated. It's really, really interesting and pretty incredible that he's so good at this since we just think of him as you know an incredible pianist that he can really get these vocal parts sorted out and placed into space like that. And also on this recording, the organ sounds great and super powerful. Well, excellent uh, two choral picks here, Mike. Very good. Well, it was it was the luck of the draw, I would say. Well, I just happened to put them both on the same program. I want to say Stephen Hoff is one of those, I guess he could qualify as what you call Renaissance man. Yeah, at least yeah, in the RMS, because he plays the piano, he composes, he writes books, he's a great writer, he's very refined. As someone I used to work with would always sarcastically ask, like, you know, can he handle a hot ground at a shortstop? Um, who knows? Maybe he can, but uh, <laughs> he can do these things exceptionally well. All right, over on the jazz side of the program, we've got all trumpet tonight with some interesting recordings. We're going to start out with a recording called A Prayer for Andrew. This is by trumpeter Ron Horton. It's on a Nouvelle label. It came out December 14th. You'll need a little bit of background information to fully appreciate what's going on here. Andrew would be Andrew Hill, the American jazz pianist and composer, lived from 1931 to 2007. He was voted Jazz Composer of the Year by the Jazz Journalists Association five times, most recently in the year that he passed away, 2007. He received the 2003 Jazz Par Award and was inducted into the Downbeat Hall of Fame and was one of the first to receive a Doris Duke Foundation Award for Jazz Composers. Also, Hill received an honorary doctorate of music degree from the Berklee College of Music. So a prayer for Andrew is Horton's collection of interpretations of Hill's arrangements as well as his own original works. And Horton, the trumpeter, has been part of New York's jazz scene since 1982 as both a player a progressive composer and arranger. He's released four recordings of his original compositions and collaborated with New York's Jazz Composers Collective since 1992. Horton and the pianist on this recording, Frank Kimbrough, became interested in Hill's ambitious music back in the 1980s. They were always looking around for rare copies of his recordings. They both ended up becoming friends with him. 
Horton joining his band as a trumpeter and arranger on Hill's Point of Departure Sextet from 1998 to 2003, including being featured on Hill's comeback album Dusk. After Andrew Hill died in 2007, Horton would continue to revisit this music in his own groups, in his 10-piece band co-led with drummer Tim Horner, who we hear here between 2009 and 16. And that band was the sort of final catalyst for this sextet that we hear on this recording, which was actually recorded in 2016, but not released until now. And sadly, the pianist Kimbrough, who we'll hear here, passed away in 2020. And here's a little quote from Elon Meller, pianist and founder of Nouvelle Records. Quote, a couple of months ago, Ron asked if he could send me these tracks featuring the music of Andrew and my old teacher, Frank Kimbrough, on piano. I told him I would be absolutely honored to hear the record, but that we don't release music we don't record personally. But after a couple of minutes listening to the mixes, I was transfixed. Ron and the band have created a treasure here. This is an album that to my ears does close to the impossible, an intricate, harmonically ambitious, melodically serpentine record that speaks only and stubbornly of love, a strange truth plainly told. End of quote. So he was obviously impressed enough to take on this music recorded outside of his label and have it finally available to us to hear in 2023. So on this recording, we've got Ron Horton, trumpet and flugelhorn, Marty Elric on alto saxophone and bass clarinet on some tracks, John O'Gallagher on alto sax on other tracks, Mark Mamas on tenor sax, Frank Kimbrough on piano, Dean Johnson on bass, and Tim Horner on drums. It's a long recording with a lot of tracks, so I'll try to go through them as quickly as possible. Track one, A Prayer for Andrew. The title track is a Horton composition, a rubato minor and longing opening. It sounds like Horton is on the flugelhorn here. Great tone and smooth intervals, and Horner has washes of cymbals and drums. It's a short track. Probably can't sample all of it, but let's hear this get going. That's lyrical and longing with some interesting harmonies there. It's just an opening track, really, only a minute and 22 seconds long. And that will lead us to track two, Erato, which is a hill composition. A rubato solo piano intro from Kimbrough, soft ringing bass underneath too. It's sparse and pretty. O'Gallagher comes in with a sax melody. The lines are unique with interesting intervals. Drums bring in a slow, steady tempo, and Horton takes the lead on lines harmonized by sax with Mamas joining in too. It builds up to a climax and a short break into a bass solo for Johnson with a huge tone and cool harmonics, bends and slides. And Horton takes a solo, so let's hear some of his playing on this tune. 
great tone and phrasing there. Mark Mamas has a tenor sax solo followed by O'Gallagher on alto. Everyone is back in on the harmonized melody to the accented climax that ends it. Track three is Venture Inward, another hill composition. A big drum beat gets it started for four measures, and then the rest of the rhythm section is in with some snappy bass riffs from Johnson for another eight measures. There's a hard bopping 16 measure horn melody. Kimbrough gets an animated and percussive piano solo. O'Gallagher has an intense alto sax solo with accents and a searing tone propelled along by horn backing lines, and he works it up to some angsty cries. Then a cool new section of horn lines with Horton getting up high that brings in Mamas on tenor sax, blowing freely over the drums. Back to the bass intro, into another run through the melody to wrap it up. It's a very intense tune. Track four, we're back to a Horton composition, Home. A folky and soulful melody for this one. The horns exchange the lines nicely in the arrangement. Seems to be an A-A-B pattern of 16 measure sections. Horton has a fine solo here with flowing melodic ideas, little ornaments, and great articulation. I was going to play some of the melody, but this solo is very tasty, so we should hear some of this. it way up high at the end of the solo. Then Kimber has a rhythmic and gospely solo on piano too before the horns are back with melody exchanges and subdued improvisations to a fade out. It's a very uplifting melody and tune. Track five is a hill composition, Dusk. This is a unique one with a sense of delirium to it. The rhythm section intro has a neat ostinato bass line of rising figures. There's a short 12-measure melody of pulsing horn line arrangements into a solo from Horton that gets into some fun, shaky antics. The horns are back for more lines transitioning into an alto solo from Marty Elric, edgy and intense, and another longer section of horn lines keep building with some topsy-turvy figures, and Kimbrough has a solo next, and it's playfully meandering. Let's hear some of his piano solo on this tune.
After the piano solo, Johnson keeps the ostinato going for Horner to work up some drums with ringing tom hits. The original horn melody returns into some final sax improv to a fade-out. Track 6, a Horton original scrum, an even-beat tune with an ominous atmosphere. The horn lines start out legato but work up to tension-building gaps over the 50-measure melody section. Underneath are accented and syncopated chords working up some dissonance. Let's hear this one get started. Gallagher is up first for an alto sax solo with some burning 16th note lines, smooth connection over the dangerous harmonies. A little lick by the horns makes a transition to a solo from Horton. It climbs higher and higher, building tensions into shakes and screams. And Momos follows on tenor sax with an interesting solo all over the range of the horn, ending up high. And Horner gets a drum solo working around a heavy bass drum beat. And all the horns are back for the original melody line to finish it up. Track 7, a Horton original Andrewology, another unique feeling tune. The rhythm section starts it out with rising bass figures that follow a 16-beat pattern. It's hard to feel the time signature here. Slinky and sleepy horn lines float in and out with some half-valve work from Horton and pitch shifts. Solo sax flurries come in between the lines as well as some piano from Kimbrough. It's really like a sleepwalk through a strange land, continuing these exchanges without building to a real climax. The horns have more fluttery exchanges toward the faded ending. Track 8ML, it's a Hill original composition. Marty Elrix's alto sax gets this off to a rubato start over Kimbrough's piano. It's pretty, but works up to an emotional squawk. So let's hear some of this in the beginning, starting at about 45 seconds in.
everyone else will join in at about two minutes, suddenly in tempo with Horton's warm tone on top of the waltzing melody. It's a long section of more than 60 measures, sometimes in unison and sometimes weaving harmonies. Momos has a meandering solo and things quiet for the start of a solo from Horton with a lot of agile phrases and some high reaches. And Kimbrough has a solo with rippling lines and punctuation. Horton returns with the melody joined by the saxes to a rather tense final chord. Track 9 is a Horton original called Hill Country. This starts out with a rhythm section intro of four measures and a slow loping bass line. The horns come in with lines into long notes building up tension. They become angular and syncopated into some stuttered articulation where the bass and drums kick it up into a double time feel and Kimbrough picks up on that stutter to get his solo going. It's kind of a unique thing going on there. So let's check out a little bit of that just into the tune. horns are back with more lines and the tempo shifts up a gear again for a solo from Horton. Another horn line segue with some flutter tonguing into a solo from O'Gallagher with some agitated piano from Kimber underneath. Things are really boiling at this point, but they keep pushing it more with the solo from Mamas next on tenor sax that the other horns add improvisations on top of to a great cacophony. Suddenly, it's back to the original loping beat with the return of the original horn lines to a subdued ending. There's a lot of transformation going on in this tune. Track 10, a hill composition, 15-8. And yes, that is the time signature. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> you can see a video of this with Horton and Elric rehearsing this with Hill on Boozy and Hawk's website. It's 15-8 by filmmaker Marky Hancock that explores this composition in rehearsal and performance. The recording of 15.8 is featured on Dusk on Palmetto Records from 2001, and it won Downbeat Album of the Year. Not an easy feel to get internalized <laughs> with this time signature, <laughs> although there's a sense of four against six beats to it that the players talk about in that rehearsal session. There's an intro with the zigzag, dizzying eighth note bass and piano line ostinato. The horns come in intermittently with descending interval figures that transform into improvised flurries. Uh, you're probably wondering what this sounds like, so let's take a listen to what's going on here. Thank you. 
a lot of fun there. Boy. Well, Kimbrough <laughs> works off the idea with hesitating piano lines into a solo. New arranged horn lines come in into more improvisation, and there's a final horn section pushing into an ending with big hits. Track 11 is Tough Love by Hill, a solo bass start from Johnson with a lot of cool slides and harmonics, a brief pause, and he brings it into a fast six-beat ostinato to be joined by bass and drums. Flowing legato horn lines contrast with the busyness below and highlight interesting modal moods with a bit of Middle Eastern flair. Mamos has a searching solo with darting lines. Things get sparse for Horton to take a solo with some horsey shakes and interesting high excursions, and Kimbrough's piano solo has waves that ebb and flow into some more chordal ideas. The flowing horn melody returns, and the ostinato continues with piano punctuations to a fade-out. Track 12 is a Horton composition punch. A funky drum beat from Horner gets it going. Mamas's tenor sax and the bass have some syncopated staccato figures leading up to the other horns coming in with longer lines and jumpy rhythmic connecting figures. O'Gallagher and Mamas get some simultaneous blowing of ideas into trading phrases, and the horn lines are back into a new subdued horn section that fades out for an ending. And the final track is a hill composition, Beleza Number no. 1. Johnson gets to start this one out solo on bass with ringing figures and slides. I was just thinking that I hadn't heard Elric's bass clarinet yet on the recording, and here it is joining the bass for a little dance together. Uh, let's hear some of that when he comes in at about 30 seconds into the tune. From there, he's going to lead it in tempo into the melody. It has a yearning quality, and the bass clarinet sounds great on this melody. It comes to a hold and restarts with a piano solo from Kimbrough, showing off a nice touch and clear articulation. It's a really long exposition on piano and worth paying special attention to. The final section gets taken by Mamas and has some warm horn line backing to it. And that's it. There's a lot of music to unpack on this recording at an hour and 18 minutes. You can get inside Hill's compositions and see how they've inspired Horton's own forward-leaning writing. There are moments of beauty and ballads contrasting with complex, agitated rhythms and tense, dissonant harmonies. The song structures are unique and have evolving arrangements, so you need to listen repeatedly to get accustomed to where they are going. Horton's playing is fine, big-toned, agile, and full of melodic improvised ideas, and Elric and O'Gallagher both have excellent sax solos with some searing moments in their solos as well. Mamas's style is a good contrast on tenor with more of a weaving, meandering style, and Kimbrough's piano work stands out with a unique touch and sense of phrasing. It's sad to hear that he passed away a few years ago. This one will give you a lot of emotional and intellectual stimulation. Yeah, I 
underlined the word uh, intellectual on this too. I said that this was an album of many different moods. Most of them are calm, but then you have tracks like 15-8 that kind of take you out of that. I particularly like the welcoming warmth of home and the darkness to light quality of the themes mm. in uh, ML and the light funkiness of uh, Punch too, I like too. Most tracks on this album are built on short phrases, in fact, and uh, the solos are as well. It's interesting what can be made of them, you know, once the soloing starts. I was really interested in that. And like you said, it's a record that really engages the intellect. The playing can get pretty wild at times and abstract at others. It's an out there album, really, uh, one that requires some uh, serious listening, I would say. I wouldn't unwind with this at the end of the day. You want your mind sharp when you listen to this. This is a record for serious listening, and it's really good playing, too. Yeah, excellent playing musicianship yeah. and uh, interesting dedication to Hill's compositions. So worth your time. All right, the next recording is by trumpeter Ambrose Akin Musuri. Owl Song on Nonesuch Records came out December 15th as well. Born and raised in Oakland, California, he was a member of the Berkeley High School Jazz Ensemble, where he caught the attention of saxophonist Steve Coleman, who was visiting the school to do a workshop and he hired him as a member of his Five Elements Band for a European tour. And Akin Musuri was also a member of the Monterey Jazz Festival's Next Generation Jazz Orchestra. He studied at the Manhattan School of Music before returning to the West Coast, getting a master's degree at the University of Southern California, and to attend the Thelonious Monk Institute of Jazz in Los Angeles. In 2007, Akin Musuri won the Thelonious Monk International Jazz Competition and the Carmine Caruso International Jazz Trumpet Solo Competition. This is his eighth recording as a leader and second this year. The earlier one was Beauty is Enough on Origami Harvest label. And I've checked him out over the years in my CD collection. I also have When the Heart Emerges Glistening from 2011 on Blue Note. Also, 2017's A Rift in Decorum, live at the Village Vanguard. And he's gone in different directions, some of which I liked more than others. I particularly enjoyed his collaboration with Tom Harrell on Harrell's Something Gold, Something Blue from 2016. But when I saw this new one that is recorded with Bill Frizzell, the great guitarist, I figured we had to check it out because Frizzell always seems to define the atmosphere and space where music hangs on a recording when he's on there. And I knew it would be interesting to see what would happen here. And it is. So we've got Ambrose Akimusuri on trumpet, Bill Frizzell on guitar, and Harlan Riley on drums. And Akimusuri says of this recording, quote, this is my reaction to being assaulted by information. <laughs> Continuing, this record is me wanting to create a safe space. Part of the challenge was, can I create something that's oriented around open space the way some of the records I love the most do? Continuing, I had a feeling of wanting to record with Bill from the first time we played. It was a dual performance, very little rehearsal. We just played through some of my songs and it worked. One of Bill's special gifts is the ability to shape a piece he's just heard for the first time. He seems to know what the music wants before the first note. I'd say that's true. That's a good uh, observation. Pretty interesting, yeah. Yeah. And then continuing on, he talks about Herland's contribution here. Quote, with Herland, his commitment to beauty you can find in the groove. I never like to tell musicians too much about what I'm going for because it should be about what these particular people bring. I said, I know you're the right person for this because of the way you approach the groove. And of course, what he did is just beautiful. 
Also, I wanted to put people together who didn't seem like they would go together, and it turns out they haven't played a lot. So it was cross-generational, cross-subgenre, cross-whatever. <laughs> so that's the end of the quote. Kind of describes pretty well, I think, what we're going to get here. An interesting combination of musicians and something with a unique sense of space. All original compositions from Akimusri. The first track, the title track, or one of two Owl songs, Owl Song 1, Riley gets it started with a relaxed heartbeat like drumbeat. I knew this recording was going to have a lot of space and we'll get that sense right away from the start. Akimusuri has a warm lyrical tone throughout. This has a gentle melody shadowed by Frisell as he also fills in the spaces with chords and bass figures. A long, gently unfolding melody. It seems to be 47 measures. Let's hear this get started. Akimusuri moves into some restrained melodic improvisations, and Frisell has some tasty rhythmic guitar figures, but it seems like a mostly composed piece coming back to the melody together to the ending with a hypnotic repeating trumpet interval. Track 2, Weighted Corners. Frisell starts this one with a repeating arpeggio figure. It seems to start on electric guitar and gets an acoustic doubling sound added. Whether that's another track or some effect, I'm not sure. Frizzell uses effects interestingly, and I often wonder exactly what he's doing. This one has a relaxed heartbeat kind of groove as well. Keep your ear on the bass line for the harmonic movement. Akimusuri comes in after about a minute. The melody is built off from repeating rhythmic riffs. Riley has some additional hand percussion on this one. The short trumpet solo here contrasts with the rhythmic melody. Long lyrical lines, but he brings back the riff with nice interplay between the three. Akimusiri works to the end of a repeated single note idea, focusing on the groove. Track 3, Flux Fuelings. A different slow and heavy groove here changes things up with Frisell adding interval ideas. The trumpet melody of long sustained notes is longing and contrasting. Let's hear some of this tune.
Welcome to City Drops Out and Returns with Sparse Improvisations. Check out the intervals, vibrato, and articulation. Lots of space between ideas as well. There's a pulsing repeated note idea too. Rather than build to a climax, the tune just seems to reach the end point. Track four is Owl Song 2, and Akamusiri starts this one by himself with a rubato repeating four-note riff. Riley has drum textures, and Frizzell plays harp-like figures into repeating intervals. It moves into a melody explored slowly by guitar and trumpet. Let's sample a bit of the beginning of this one as well. keeps the relaxed processional feel going for sections of exchanges of ideas from trumpet and guitar and then working another melodic line together. The excitement picks up with a long trilled note and animated drumming. It works to a final section with simple accents of the final melodic line. Track 5 is Grace, an intro of unison rubato melodic lines between trumpet and guitar. Akimusiris shifts off into longer sustained notes before the ideas repeat, but pauses for some drum statements from Riley before continuing. The trumpet improvisations on this one are quite interesting, and let's hear a little of that in the middle of the tune. into the melodic dance with some half valve ideas and a final high concert C sharp coming out of the horn of Akimusiri. I like the delicate intimacy on this tune. Next two duet pieces, six is called Mr. Frizzell, a guitar and trumpet duet here. An interval idea is established and Akimusiri works playful runs between the notes building up from the beginning. 
Uh, it's another close dance from the two, moving together with some more half-valve and fluttery additions on the trumpet as they work to the end through the interval idea to a final ringing harmonic on the guitar. In track seven, Mr. Riley. Riley beats it in with an intro of a somewhat New Orleans-style beat, and Akimusire blows chromatic and modulating lines before getting into the rhythmic spirit with figures syncing up with the drums. And the final track is called Henya. This one gets off to a mysterious start with insistent, repeated guitar notes, soft legato trumpet lines into dissonances and swelling drum ideas. The drums keep an atmosphere of tension for soft trumpet and guitar lines to interlace, and Akimusiri gets some lines reminding me of Miles Davis's Saeta from Sketches of Spain. Some interesting interactions come about after Fussell gets some rhythmic figures going into a synthy loop, and let's hear some of that later on in the tune. It closes out with a final heartbeat drum like the album opened with and some finger snap sounds as well. The whole recording feels like an exploration of unique spaces. That's almost always the case when Bill Frisell is on your recording, and it seems to be just what Akin Musiri had in mind. His trumpet stays lyrical throughout with a mix of soft melodic lines and more adventurous harmonic explorations. Frisell is enigmatic and minimalist as always, and Riley adds to the atmosphere and propels things to the more energized climaxes. Intimate and contemplative, put it on late at night and see what happens. Yeah, I was really curious to hear this. I don't know if we mentioned this, but I think this is his first um, recording on the Nonesuch label. That's right, yeah. And it's going to be the first of three, I think. He wants to put out three albums. Can I say this year? This one came out technically last year, 2023, right? Right. I don't know if this qualifies as jazz, but it certainly is adult music, so it belongs on the podcast. Although Yaki Musiri and uh, Bill Frizzell are both jazz musicians, as is uh, Herlin Riley. It's got kind of an arty song quality to it, I thought. Mm. And it's really, for that reason, I think it's a real nonesuch album. They tend to like to sort of <laughs> transgress boundaries or, you know, do things like that. I feel like these tracks may as well have lyrics and vocals. I mean, they, they all sound kind of like songs. Mm. Interesting idea. Yeah, and I think arty is the operative word for this album, but it's absolutely not pretentious. We shouldn't say that. People think of arty as pretentious, but that's not the case here. It's actually rather beautiful in a sad rainy day kind of way it sounds full right. of regret Akim Musiri plays melodically through the album and for Cell's presence like you said and we've we both said this many times yeah. in the past <laughs> is always felt one of the qualities that I like so much about him and I think you do too it's an appealing album 
one for specific moods. And Akimusari said that he kind of tried to create this as a safe space, and you actually use that, that he's creating some sort of space. Yes. This might be an album you want to kind of keep close to you in, in this new year with all the lunacy that's inevitably going <laughs> to you know, be played out until the elections in November in the USA and whatever else happens. So uh, keep this close. It could be your own personal safe space, I'd say. Yeah, it's definitely got a kind of calm sanctuary kind of vibe to it so yeah it came out at the right time <laughs> all right in a final recording we've got marco mebus's quintet all those things still to be said on galileo music communication also came out december 15th all these recordings came out the same day hmm. now mebus is a german trumpeter born in 1993 he began playing at the age of 10 at that time, in the local music club, he was inspired by Louis Armstrong's Hot 5 and Hot 7 recordings. He's a member of the Federal Jazz Orchestra from 2016 to 2018. He leads various of his own casts of groups of musicians, and he's active throughout Germany as a soloist, lead trumpeter, composer, arranger, and trumpet teacher. Since October 2019, he's been a lecturer for jazz trumpet at the Dr. Hawks Conservatory of the city of Frankfurt. So we've got Marco Mibis here, mostly on flugelhorn, all original compositions. Julius Gallick, tenor saxophone, Felix Hauptmann, piano, Yannick Thiemann on bass, and Jan Philipp on drums. Recording's going to start out with a tune called Evil or Dumb. A ringing hmm. solo piano intro from Hauptmann, Philipp's cymbals etch out a tempo and bring in Mebus with the melody just before a minute into the tune. It's a slow four-beat ballad with a 24-measure melody. Sounds like flugelhorn here, rich tone, and he gets joined by Gallic's sax for some harmony and weaving lines. The groove gets a boost from the drums and more snappy bass, and Hauptmann's up first for a solo, and he makes it snappy over the new rhythmic pulse. So let's check out some piano playing on the first tune. the start of an eight-measure horn line transition to Mebus's own solo, and things get sparser. Relaxed phrasing and a nice sense of space, he gets more animated with double-time figures as it goes along, connecting back to a final melody section where the rhythm section comes undone in a neat way, sort of running out of gas into dreamy holds before a pause and a horn pickup to a final hold of rising piano chimes. It's a dreamy and airy tune. Track two is called Fanfare, another slow tune with an even beat from soft drum brushes. Mebus takes the 16-measure melody, and then Gallic gets two times around for a solo, a full tenor sax tone, and no hurry to flutter out melodic phrases. So let's hear some sax soloing on this tune. 
Amoebus returns for his own solo statement. Next, he has a sense of reaching with rising phrases into the higher register and explores some harmonic tension on his way down. Hopton follows on piano with a ringing sense and nice drum decorations from Philippe underneath. Both horns work the final melody section, which is a little shorter at 16 measures and ends in a unique disintegration. Amoebus seems to like this effect because it's similar to the previous tune. Track three is called Movement, a tense 16 measure rhythm section intro with ringing dissonant piano chords over chromatic moving bass figures. There's a flowing harmonized horn melody that seems to change up between four and six beat phrases. They get a little harmonic tension resolved into a solo from Gallic first. Mavis takes the solo baton with some half valve tones for an angsty entrance, but returns to a pretty tone over halting phrases as the beat lightens and floats. It gets more pressing and rhythmic, there's a return to the intro idea and another run through the horn melody to an ending with some cacophony. Track 4 is the title track, All Those Things Left to Be Said. An airy melody of horn lines, there seems to be a meter change up in the 13th or 14th measure before it resets. Let's hear this tune get going. Hauptmann has a little piano interlude before the horns are back with more lines before the piano gets a full solo. And Mebus solos next, so since it's his record, we ought to get around to hearing one of his solos. So let's jump ahead and hear his solo on this track. Thank you. 
nice contrast of big and fluffy flugelhorn tone and higher register work there. He continues on to be rejoined by Garlic for the final melody section. Track 5, The Home, a piano and flugelhorn ballad duet that unfurls in rubato fashion. It gets more forward motion and then settles back. Hoffman gets a solo section that trickles on over the dreamy harmonies before Mebus returns with fluffy improvised lines. He works up to more insistent rising phrases and it comes to a hold and reset around four minutes returning to melody phrases. The ending is interesting with high piano tinkles over lower left hand movement. Track six is called Whiteout, another ballad that starts out with rubato flugelhorn and piano and lush harmonies. It kicks into a steady tempo with soft brush drumming and a section of harmonized lines with Gallic's sax. This time, Tiemann is up for a soft but fat-toned bass solo, and Gallic has a solo too with a gentle start but building up rhythmic propulsion with 16th notes, and Mebus joins him again for a final melody section. And the recording ends with a tune called Late October Broom. This is a fun, more rhythmic tune. There's a 16-measure intro from the rhythm section, setting a 4-4 groove with a bass ostinato. When Mebus joins in with the melody, there's a sudden switch to a swinging waltz feel, and then back and forth between the rhythmic feels, again as Gallic joins in too. Let's hear some of that rhythmic playfulness uh, just into the tune. into a more rhythmically ambiguous section of horns before getting back to the swinging waltz and change-ups for some soloing from Mebus, but then he hands it off quickly to Gallic. Then Mebus returns soloing over just Tiemann's bass for a section before piano and drums return. Philippe gets to work up some drum fills and accents over some piano vamping into the waltzing melody start from Mebus through the rhythmic change-ups with some improvisational trades with Gallic, and the rhythm section takes it out. Mostly mellow and airy ballads are the focus here, but there are some moments of rhythmic excitement. Mebus's melodies seem to unfold continuously rather than have repeated sections. The harmonies are rich and dreamy, but he's not afraid to explore dissonances. The chord colors stand out due to nice voicings from Hauptmann's piano playing. Mebus has a rich flugelhorn tone, lyrical phrasing, and enough ideas to carry through interesting solos. Gallic shows a variety of expression in his sax solos too, and the harmonized horn arrangements weave nicely. It's a fine debut, and also good for a late evening listen. I, I, I said the late evening listening as well. This is a pretty chilled out uh, jazz programming on yeah, this is, uh, isn't it? podcast. Mm. You had three uh, more or less calm uh, albums. This one is really uh, chilled out, and it brought to mind for me a lot of the uh, East European jazz that we've heard 
before. Mm. They tend to like these kind of darker moods or slower sort of tempos. This album is it's pretty minimal and it, solos are very sparse. Like in you know, there's a lot of space right. in the solos. Um, music is mostly melodic and with the piano going off on some interesting exploratory harmonic journeys at times, always at a meditative pace. It's almost like he's got these issues in his head that he's kind of working out on the piano and we're all hearing that, <laughs> you know? Right. Mebus likes to play with a wavering kind of sensitive tone, which seems to me hard to achieve. I think because you have to be able to you know, maintain that breath at that level to keep the tone mm. going. He does it really well. And for me, the last track, uh, Late October Broom, interesting title. And also it's the most upbeat and the one I like the best, really. The vulnerability, this is a good word for his tone in um, mm. Mebus's playing, it's vulnerable. The vulnerability of the performances comes across on this, and that's something we could all relate to, and it's a record we could all relate to, and like you said, best for late night. And nice uh, debut as a leader, want to hear more, so keep our ear out for future releases. And there you go, a uh, program of midnight meditations, Yeah, bringing in the new year, 2024, since we're recording a day early, <laughs> so yeah. we won't have to do this on New Year's Eve. I haven't got right. my picks for next episode made yet. I don't yeah, know about neither you. do I. I have an idea, but I want to Right. Check I want to take I've a got. look yeah. back at uh, what we've got left over from 2023. <laughs> Is that going to be the title of the next podcast? The Leftovers. <laughs> leftovers. <from> <laughs> it could be. Everybody will scramble to hear that one. <laughs> Anyway, we'll get those sorted out and shared with each other tomorrow. And soon after that, we'll get them shared with you. Once this episode gets right. published, within a few hours, I usually have them up on Deezer. And there'll be a link to it on our Facebook page. So if you want to know the recordings for next week's episode, you can check either one of those places. You know, some band should make a record of their B-sides and call it Leftovers. And the album cover would just be like, you know, <laughs> stuff in the fridge that's kind of, you know. That'd be pretty funny. Some moldy it? food or whatever. <laughs> well, thanks as always to Fast Science of Staten Island for our glowing neon image. And remember to check out the Same Difference podcast and check them out after you hear this episode. Because we're going to be checking ourselves out over there. Yeah. I'll put a link to their episode probably on our Facebook page as well. It'll be like looking in a mirror or it's listening in a mirror, however you would do that. <laughs> anyway, any final words uh, to uh, get the new year started, Mike? Well, just happy new year to everyone. And I hope you have a uh, happy, healthy, prosperous new year and uh, full of wonderful music. Because you know the music's going to be great. It's, it's not going to be, you know, we're not going to be let down. I mean, 2023 was an okay year, but there's a lot of great music. Yeah, and we'll keep doing our best every week to uh, find it and uh, present you options that you may not find anywhere else. So please keep listening. We're good at that. <laughs> yeah, we're good at that. Keep checking in with the podcast and we'll keep pushing on through the new year. So until our next episode, keep listening and we'll see you again next time. Happy New Year, everyone. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you. 